Hello, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to our weekly podcast, Elder Law Issues. I'm talking with my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Thanks, Robert. I thought I would um, suggest that we talk today about something that is just really sexy and very exciting. Thought maybe we could talk about unitrusts. Uh, that sounds like, uh, I don't know what it sounds like. It sounds like science fiction somehow. Have, have you run into a lot of unitrusts in your life? Well, Robert, they come sometimes shaped a little differently. They might not say unitrust right at the top of the page. But yes, we do see those from time to time. And I think it's important that the folks listening today remember we are Arizona attorneys and we're talking about Arizona law um, we actually have a statute on point regarding unitrust, and maybe we might talk about that too, because that's important to keep in mind. I, I think that's really important to remind people because the state law does vary quite a bit. And our Arizona's unitrust law is pretty pretty new. Not It didn't get adopted last year, but it's only been around for a few years. Uh, and what it does is it gives people, gives trustees in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, the option to treat a trust as a unit trust. And that, as you say, that doesn't necessarily show up in the name on the trust. It may not even, the trust may not make reference to the idea. But if a trust says all the income, for instance, goes to one person and on that person's death, then everything goes to the remainder beneficiaries. Arizona law allows the trustee in many cases to decide to, instead of transferring all of the income, to decide a number between 3 and 5% of the value of the trust will be distributed each year. And uh, that's kind of hard to really see why that makes a big difference until you start thinking about the trust administration issues and, and what a trustee's duty is. And Robert, when you say 3 to 5% of the trust assets, you're talking about both principal and income from the trust, correct? Exactly, right. So if a if a the classic illustration is a trust for a surviving spouse by federal law uh, there were a lot of these set up in past years they still um, show up from time to time as new trusts but by federal law they typically have to say that the surviving spouse gets all the income and that puts the trustee in a bind because the surviving spouse would like the trustee to invest in income producing assets like treasury bonds and things that are not going to grow in value but that have a reliable income stream while the remainder beneficiaries wish the trustee would invest in things that will grow and might not have very much income and so there's a there's an immediate uh, by, uh, a, a difficulty between the two approaches that comes out of that income distribution requirement. And Robert, when we think about the trustee's ability um, to make decisions around what is income and what is principal, um, what is one of the chief goals administratively of a unit trust? The primary reason you create a unit trust in that situation, and remember, this is the trustee's decision, not the not the person who signed the trust, not the deceased spouse in our surviving spouse story. Uh, it's a trustee's decision. The primary goal is to allow them to make investments to maximize the total return. And in fact, this kind of unit trust is pretty often called a total return unit trust. So once the trustee declares the unit trust and decides to give for instance, 4% of the, of the value to the surviving spouse or whoever the beneficiary is every year, 
then they can change the investment style so they can, with a little luck, they can beat 4%. They can maybe get 5, 6, even sometimes 8, even in some really good years, 10%. And everybody wins. The, the trustee is happier because they're able to actually produce better yield. The remainder beneficiaries are happier because they, uh, they see that on the death of the income beneficiary, they'll get more money. And even the income beneficiary is better off because instead of three or two or two and a half percent of the principal balance for the rest of time, they start getting three or four or five percent of a, of a trust that should be increasing in value. Some years it won't, but most years it'll increase in value by more than the four percent or whatever the unit trust amount is. And so over time, the income beneficiary will see higher income. And so, Robert, when we think a little bit about not only the goals of of a unit trust, but how it might be used, can you talk to us a little bit about how the calculation may be made? Is that annually? And then would that, um, the income and principal, the 4% or whatever it might be, would that be distributed quarterly? Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those details? Sure. So if a trustee decides to declare a trust to be a unit trust, first of all, you can't go back and forth. You can't change your mind the, every every June to decide this month, this year we're going to do it the other way. But once you declare the unit trust, you can say, okay, on December 31st, this trust was worth exactly $400,000. And I'm going to declare a 4% unit trust, and that means I'm going to distribute $16,000. And I can, I can do that however I want. I can do it in 12 equal installments. I can do it in four quarterly installments. Uh, although most of the kinds of trusts that benefit from unit trust treatment do require at least quarterly distributions. But if the trust doesn't require it, there's no reason you couldn't wait until December 31st of next year to with, to distribute the full full 4%. However, one of the nice benefits for the beneficiary of a unit trust, the income beneficiary, is that they have a nice reliable stream of income. And uh, and so they probably would love you to do it on a monthly basis. You can divide the the 4% of the December 31st value uh, by 12 and just write that check on the first of every month or the seventh of every month or whatever day you like for the rest of the year for 12 installments. And as I say, everybody's happy. And the beneficiary has a really reliable source of income, not a, num a number that goes up and down every month or every quarter with which CDs mature or which treasury bonds mature or what the, the new interest rate is on new investments. It's It's a really smooth and efficient way to operate many of those income-only kinds of trusts. And Robert, what do you think is the single most frequent thing that people make mistakes with when it comes to unit trust? Because I think sometimes people misunderstand how how they should be used and, and things should be calculated. What's a common mistake that you see? I think some people think they have to recalculate it every every month or every time they make a distribution, and they're not required to. In fact, they're not supposed to. They're supposed to do an annual value, pretty typically the, the end of the calendar year. So that makes it super easy. Uh, I think actually that's a fair characterization of the mistake most people make. They want to make it harder because it's so simple to do in an appropriate case. Now, not every case is an appropriate case. 
But uh, if you are the trustee of, a, of an income trust that's making calculations every month or every quarter to make distributions, and you live in Arizona, therefore the trust is governed by Arizona law, uh, you might talk to us or another Arizona law firm about whether Unitrust uh, potential is something that would that would improve the quality of yours and the beneficiary's life. And by the way, you can do that even if you are the income beneficiary, if you're the trustee of a, of a trust um, that you're the one receiving income from. And so, Robert, these sound pretty terrific. You mentioned today's spouses. So one spouse may have died, the surviving spouse may benefit from a Unitrust. But it's correct that it doesn't just have to be a married couple who would find utility for something like this. That's right. It could be any beneficiary who's entitled to receive the income from a trust. Whether or not they're permitted to get dis- distributions of principal, it may still be an available option. A- every trust is going to be a little bit different, and I don't want to overgeneralize. But, uh, but if you are the beneficiary or if you're the trustee of a trust that has an income distribution um, this is something you ought to be talking to your, your lawyer about, uh, about exploring, about whether it might make everybody happier. And I will tell you that in the cases I've seen of surviving spouses, particularly, it really makes the surviving spouse happier and also benefits the remainder beneficiaries in each of the cases I've seen and implemented the Unitrust approach. Well, this sounds great, Robert. Thanks for the uh, message today. There are other kinds of Unitrusts. We can talk about those on another day, but, uh, but this total return Unitrust is just really an exciting thing. Oh, well, we have to redefine exciting for what it is we do for a living. Elizabeth, thank you for chatting with me about Unitrusts. I'm Robert Fleming, talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are the partners in the Tucson, Arizona law firm of Fleming & Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, and we hope you'll keep doing it.